You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Here to help you with your home improvement projects, let's solve the do-it-yourself dilemma. Is it a home repair? Is it a home remodeling question? Is it a decor question? Whatever your challenge is, pick up the phone. Let us help you first by calling us at 1-888-MONEYPIT, 888-666-3974. Coming up on today's program, your kitchen is where you cook, you eat, you pay bills, you do homework, and you just hang out. So it's no wonder that just one type of lighting won't do the trick. We're going to have some tips about all the different lighting options you need to consider for your kitchen so that you shed the light right on every task. And St. Patrick's Day is right around the corner, and there could not be a more perfect time to talk about greening your home. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about types of countertops that are the most earth-friendly. Plus, if you want a quick way to start a neighborhood feud, just put up an ugly fence on the wrong side of a property line. We're going to have some tips on the right way to fence in your yard coming up. And this hour, we're giving away a copy of our book, My Home, My Money Pit, your guide to every home improvement adventure, and we'll even sign it for you. So give us a call right now. The number again is 888-MONEY-PIT. Leslie, who's first? All right, now we're going to help Bud in Oregon avoid a hair-raising electrical situation. What's going on, Bud? I've got three banks of the uh, two bulbs each, four foot long, mounted up in the ceiling, built into a box directly over my cooktop. And during the summertime when the humidity is higher, if I get any moisture up there, it can take sometimes days before those lights will come on reliably on the first flip of the switch. Now in the winter, when I'm burning a wood stove, which means I got lower humidity inside the house, uh, if I'm cooking on the cooktop and don't turn the lights on before, I get the same problem, except as soon as the moisture stops going up there and I've got 10, 15 minutes, then the lights will start coming back on regularly and be reliable again. (laughs) So what I need to know from you, if you've got some suggestions, is before I get up there and start looking for how to do something, I want to know what I need to have in in stock. Uh, is there something, uh, a lubricant, a cleanser, or whatever to, to do something with contacts or got any suggestions? I would give up on those fixtures. Yeah, I would, too. I think you're right. I would just give up on them. They don't sound safe to me. Um, I'm not quite sure what exactly is going wrong with them, but they certainly shouldn't be behaving that way. And I would worry about them getting worse and potentially causing a fire. The cost of a four-foot dual-bulb fluorescent fixture is not very much today. And so I would simply take this on as a project and replace each and every one of them. 
I wouldn't try to change the ballast out. I wouldn't try to clean it. I wouldn't try to do anything like that. I would just replace them. It's just not worth it. That's not what I wanted to hear, but it's a good thing, and it's probably cheaper in the long run to spend the eight ten dollars per you know put up three brand new ones. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'll just look for a good time when I can do it without breaking my neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's always important, Bud. Thanks so much for calling us at eight 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 Money Pit. Mary Lee in Washington has a call about radiant heat for the floor. Tell us what's going on. I'm going to remodel my bathroom. It'll have a tile floor. Some of my neighbors in my condominium have put under their floors and say they love it. But I wonder if there's any efficiency to it or if it's just an expensive comfort. I think it's more of a luxury item because your condominium probably has enough heat with the core heating system. That said, it is kind of nice to have that toasty floor in the bathroom. And if you don't mind the expense to install it, you can you can control the expense to run it because you're always going to you're only going to operate it, you know, when you need it. You can put it on a timer, you could heat the floor up just for one particular, you know, bath shower experience. You can really control that usage. But it is awfully nice to have that there's nothing efficient about it. It's uh, it's definitely going to cost you some money to run because it's electric, and it's the most expensive form of heat. Okay, thank you. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com. Now you can call in your home repair, your home improvement question, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at one eight 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 Money Pit eight 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 six 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 three nine seven four. Well, more and more Americans are looking to sustainable or renewable building materials when they renovate. So coming up, we're going to have some tips on how to pick the greenest options in countertops after this. You live in a body pit. The Money Pit is brought to you by Lutron's new Maestro Occupancy Sensing Switch. Never ask, who left the lights on again? Starting at around $20, this motion-sensing light switch turns the lights on automatically when you walk into a room and off when you leave and works with all types of light bulbs. Learn more at LutronSensors.com. Making good homes better, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Give us a call for the answer to your do-it-yourself dilemma, and you'll be entered into a random drawing to win a copy of our book, My Home, My Money Pit, Every Guide to Home Improvement Adventure comes complete with our own personal graffiti, otherwise known as an autograph. That's right. We'll happily sign it for you and, of course, increase its value by 35 cents. No kidding. (laughs) 888-666-3974. Now we're talking to Pauline in New Jersey who needs some help with a countertop. How can we help you today? I have a lot of counters in both bathrooms and the kitchen, and from this, I have backsplashes as well. And where the backsplash and the counter meet, it's coming up white, and it's, it looks like dry paste. And also, what's happened over the last few years, at first I took a little bit off you know, with my nail, but now it's getting really bad, and it's, there are splash marks as though when they put the counter in, they didn't clean off the so whatever they used, and it looks like you splashed something on and it dried up. And I don't want to use anything that isn't right for the granite and ruin it. So I was wondering if you had a suggestion that might be easy for me to use and, you know, get rid of this stuff. How long um, have you had these countertops? When were they first installed? 
seven years ago. And they've never been sealed since? No, no. Well, you know, granite tops do take quite a bit of maintenance. People think that they're fairly maintenance-free because they're somewhat indestructive, but they really do need a lot of care, and they need to be resealed from time to time. And it sounds to me like the white stuff that you're describing is most likely mineral salts. And what happens is the, the countertops, when they lose their seal, they absorb more moisture. Then the moisture evaporates off, and it leaves behind the mineral salt deposits that's in the in the water. And that forms that white sort of crust. It's like a grayish-white crust. Now, what are you using to clean them on a daily basis? Generally, just water and a little... They told me to use the uh, Windex. Yeah, you know, you can make a homemade granite cleaner with uh, rubbing alcohol, standard rubbing alcohol, mixed with uh, maybe half a dozen drops of dishwasher detergent. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Well, we're going green in honor of St. Patrick's Day, only our green may be a little different than most. We're talking green in terms of eco-friendliness and specifically eco-friendly kitchens. Now, one of the easy ways that you can be kind to the earth is through your choice of countertops. Now, you might not get absolutely everything that you want in an earth-friendly countertop, but here are some tips to think about. First, stone countertops are beautiful, they're natural, and they're durable, but they're actually not renewable. Mining of any kind affects the land and water quality. Solid surfacing is beginning to catch up in terms of earth-friendliness. Some counters are made of recycled plastics, but in the end, the product often ends up in landfills. So what are the most earth-friendly choices? Well, both ceramic tile and glass tile come from recycled materials, and they can be recycled when you're done with them. Another green option is concrete, which is always gaining in popularity. If you want some more countertop ideas along with the pros and cons, you want to head over to MoneyPit.com and search Green Kitchen Countertops, and we'll list there what the materials are, what the benefits are, what the cons are in using it, and it'll really help you make an educated decision. Great tip. Richard in Ohio is living in a pretty drafty house. Join the club. Tell me what's going on. Insulation contractor came and blew cellulite insulation in the walls. Left a lot of voids in it, which caused a forced drafts. So I had infrared camera work done, and uh, the floors are like 31 degrees and about 45 degrees waist high. And uh, I can't seem to figure out what's going on here or what to do about it. However, I found a physics teacher at Restar's Old Homes. She told me that uh, if you leave an old, a void in an insulation, insulated wall, it will uh, cause a forced draft. There'd be pretty, quite a few forced drafts in here. Well, maybe, maybe not. But here's the thing. First of all, you had blown an insulation done, and you followed that up with an infrared camera inspection. I'm guessing you didn't do that right after the uh, installer was done, correctly. You did this later on to try to figure out why it was still cold in the house? Yes. Yeah. And it's very difficult to install blown an insulation in a wall and do it correctly. So we've heard this before. The best installers will you know take a long time to make sure it gets in just right. They put in just the right amount, and they knew how to get it in every bay, and then they use an infrared camera to figure out if they've missed anything. So it sounds to me like now we've got a real mess in the outside wall. We don't know what's insulated, what's not insulated. Let's set that aside for right now and cover two other very important basics. Number one is the attic. We want to make sure that you have enough insulation in your attic because – if you can trap the heat from escaping or the, from the attic, which is where most of the heat leaves the house, you, you may find that it's going to make you more comfortable. In the, the attics of Ohio, 
where you're located, you're going to need at least 15 to 20 inches of fiberglass insulation. Most people don't have that much, but that is what the Department of Energy would recommend. So if you don't have that much insulation, the first thing I want you to do is add insulation to your attic. The second thing, you mentioned you're on a crawl space. Your floor has got to be insulated. Again, unfaced fiberglass bats. If it's a standard 2 by 10 floor joist, you want to fill that up with a full 10 inches of insulation. If you can insulate the floor and the attic, two areas that are accessible and easy to access, you're kind of halfway there. Now, what are we going to do about the exterior wall? Well, short of taking it apart, we're not going to easily solve this problem with the blown-in. If you had an insulation company that could work with the camera and add additional blown-in, they might be able to fill it in. But that's going to be expensive, and I don't know if you're going to get a good return on investment. So what I would suggest you do is everything else that you can do to stop the drafts. So that means sealing around windows and doors and outlets and light switches, especially, to make sure that we get as many of those gaps closed as possible. And then from a decorating perspective, very often, um, Leslie, you jump right in because I've heard you recommend heavy drapes over these windows, too, to try to short circuit those drafts that are sort of falling around the windows. Yeah, and you can do it sort of twofold. You know, we have drafty windows. Unfortunately, um, the previous owners installed not the greatest of windows, and they were poorly installed. So short of doing like a major project here, I've gotten creative. I've done a sort of double-lined fabric shade that's up against the glass portion of the window itself. And I'll draw those down during the colder times. And then I have a heavier drape that I use in the winter as well that's lined that I will just close up, you know, to make sure that I'm keeping those drafts out. Also, if you've got baseboard heating in that room, you want to make sure that nothing is blocking those baseboards. You know, your furniture, you've got to pull away from the walls. You know, think about giving it some air to just sort of circulate the heat around the room a little bit better. Um, but but really heavy fabrics, heavy draperies, that really does make a huge difference. Richard, I hope that advice helps you out. Thanks so much for calling us at one eight 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 Money Pit. Jan in California is having a wallpaper removal situation. Tell us what's going on. I've been re- removing wallpaper and repapering for fifty years, and I've never come across where you take the wallpaper off and it looks like there's a paper lining behind it. I've had some people tell me that this is a filler for the um, texturing so the wallpaper looks smooth, and others tell me that it's a liner, and it fills the whole wall with pencil lines where the wallpaper goes. I don't want to damage the sheetrock that's underneath, so I'm a little leery about taking that off or leaving it on or what I should do with it. So your end game is to get down to the drywall? Well, it doesn't have to be if I can texture over Uh, what's there, but it's almost like a paper. And I don't know if we can put the mud and everything on that. If it's adhered well, then I don't see why you couldn't texture over it. Do you want to use a textured paint? No, I want to uh, use the texture that I've had on the other walls. The key here is whether or not the surface that you've exposed is well adhered to the drywall underneath. If it's well adhered, then you can go ahead and put your texture over that. If it's not, then your texture could be on there for a couple of months and it could start falling off in chunks when that backer paper pulls off. As long as it's well adhered, then I don't see any reason you can't go on top of it, Jen. Okay, I appreciate you and enjoy your program all the time. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit.
Now we are heading over to Tennessee, and Randall is dealing with some mold in the garage. Tell us what's going on. Uh, yeah, there is um, some black mold in a, um, a house that I'm I'm renting. Actually, um, I I can do any work here, so there's no problem. It, apparently, there was a water heater that went out, and so it's up about. It goes from everywhere from about a foot up to about maybe three feet and around the back of the water heater and down the wall. All right, so your question is, what should you do about that, correct? Well, yeah, yeah. I wanted to know whether I can clean it or I need to rip out all of the uh, the drywall and just uh, start over again. Well, the general rule of thumb is that if it's less than 10 square feet, you can do the removal yourself or you can clean it yourself. And the simple thing to do is to mix up a bleach and water solution and spray it down, let the bleach sit, for 15, 20 minutes on the wall and then clean that uh, dead, what will now be dead mold off of the wall. How would you clean that? Um, you could use that bleach and water solution and, you know, a bucket and a sponge and wipe it down. You just want to not, you want to be careful not to breathe any mold spores. So you wear a dust mask and that sort of thing. Is it just a dust mask or do I have to buy something more uh, expensive like uh, one of those filter masks? Well, here's the thing, Randall. Some people are, some people are super sensitive to mold and some people are not. And, a lot of people can go ahead and clean that with virtually no protection and never have any ill effects. And other people that can, can will try to do that and, and, and be super allergic and be generally miserable as a result of the experience. So the answer is it depends. But if you go to the website for the Centers for Disease Control, they've got a great section on mold and how to get rid of it there. And you will find some uh, some step by step advice too on how to, how to clean it up. Okay, so some bleach solution, water, uh, about half and half. No, only you only need about ten uh, percent bleach. Ten or fifteen percent bleach is plenty. Hey, I appreciate it. John in Delaware is dealing with a spider problem. I can't even talk about it for fear they will jump <laughs> into my house. What's going on? I moved to the beach uh, about ten years ago. I'm not. I'm twelve miles from the water, but I don't know whether that's part of the problem or not. But we have spiders inside the house all the time. They're always in the corners of the rooms. It's rare to come into any room and not have one. And it seems like as quickly as you get rid of them a week later, you have more in the same areas, and it is very annoying. What do you do to get rid of them, John? The only thing I do is I try to kill them and knock down their little web. Good luck with that. That's not working out too well for you, I bet, huh? No, it's not. You're not going to win the war if that's if that's your treatment approach. The thing about uh, insects today is the best way to control them is, is is through science. And if you look at a company like Orkin, you know, a company that's been around forever, these guys know exactly what insecticide to put down. They know how to put it down in, in the right amounts. And the products that they use today are very insect-specific. It used to be that there was sort of a broad-spectrum pesticide that was put down. Today, the Pesticides are very, very specific for the problem. And if, you know, if I was dealing with this in my house, I wouldn't be running around with my boot trying to kill them all. I would have the pesticide applied, the right amounts, right place, and be done with it. So I would recommend that you call Orkin and have that taken care of the right way. It's safer to do that than to buy over-the-counter pesticides, which you end up over-applying, which are far more dangerous in my view. And certainly, 
a lot less frustrating than having to stomp them to death. Okay, so I, I would use a pesticide to control these spiders, and uh, that's the best solution. Okay, and you would not advise trying to do it on your own. You'd advise getting a company that's what, paying regularly to have them come back? Yeah, you can't buy the products that a professional can buy. They're not available to the general public because they have to be applied just right. That's why it's a good idea to turn to a pro like Orkin. John, thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Still ahead, the kitchen is probably the most used room in your house, you know, where a lot goes on besides actually cooking and eating. So if you've got a single overhead light source, you're missing out. Find out how to light your kitchen perfectly when the Money Pit continues after this. Making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we would love for you to check out our new Pin to Win sweepstakes, which is live right now on our Facebook page. And I know everyone is ready for spring, but are you ready for spring cleaning? Well, we've got four great tips to help you get started, and all you have to do is pin at least one of the tips to your Pinterest board for a chance to win one of three gift cards for the Home Depot. We've got $100, $150, and $250 just waiting for you. Check it out at Facebook.com slash The Money Pit. Rich in Illinois needs some help with a painting project. Tell us what you're working on. I'm working on a house that I've been living in since 1988, and the um, bottom four sections of my steel siding keep peeling. Um, It's like a 30-foot-long piece. Each piece is like eight inches wide. It has a wood grain pattern on it. It looks like it's been stamped. And uh, every two years I approach this project. Um, First time I took a wire brush to it and knocked all the loose off and primed it and Two years later, I was doing it again, and uh, every year I try a different method. I tried a wire wheel on a drill. Last year, I took an air compressor and a hose and, and wow. a drill and a wire wheel and went down to the bare metal and went to the um, paint store, and uh, they gave me some primer and some paint. And uh, it seemed like everything I try, I wash it with paint thinner sometimes before I do it. Sometimes I just use soap and water. Um, I always make sure it's a nice dry day, about 80 degrees when I paint it, and it seems to always come back about every two to three years. I know it should be replaced, but I kind of like the styling, but it's steel, and it's the company is no longer in business now, and so the warranty is up on it. Well, and you know, there's different qualities of steel, so even if it had a rust-resistant finish on it, it could have just worn off, and I wonder if whatever process they use is what's causing the... The, the the paint to not stick. When you prime it, are you using an oil based primer or using an alkyde primer? Both. I, I've I've used both. Um, I don't know if it's it's the primer that I use or if it's I've even went down to no paint at all and just the galvanized showing. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what it, I don't know if it's a primer or or what I'm using to wash the siding with that's causing it or it's the paint. Um, I tried, I tried like four or five different kinds of paint on this in primer. What I would do, I mean, if I was priming it, and you may have done this already, but what I would do is I would use same manufacturer's primer and paint. So, for example, I don't think you can go wrong with Rust-Oleum. You know, that's pretty much you know, one of the best metal paints at all. I would use the red Rust-Oleum primer, the oil-based primer. 
and I would let it thoroughly dry after you knock off all the loose paint and sand it and make sure a surface ready to accept it. But I would use the oil-based Rust-Oleum primer, which, by the way, takes like forever to dry. I mean, depends on the weather, but three or four or five hours is not unusual. And then I would use the Rust-Oleum top coat, again, oil-based. And I rarely recommend oil-based, but in this situation, I think that's what's going to give you the best adhesion. Now, Rich, there's one other piece of advice that we could offer you on this. And it, it comes from a process that's very it's all, that's done very often when people work on cars. There's a product called Prepsol, P-R-E-P-S-O-L. And it's a solvent that's designed to be applied to bare metal before the primer. You might want to look that up. As a, I don't know what you said. You're using solvent. I don't know if you're using mineral salt, mineral, mineral spirits, something like that. But this is specifically made for it. Just Google it. It's called Prepsol, P-R-E-P-S-O-L, and it's a cleaning solvent. Okay. Do I apply it with a brush or a rag? You or? apply it with a rag. You use a, like a clean cloth, and you apply it. You soak it in with the cloth. Yeah, I'll try that. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at eight 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 Money Pit. Joyce in Rhode Island, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? Having an in-law apartment, and someone who was living there for a while was smoking. And we wanted to do whatever we could to get the smell of the smoke out of the um, apartment. Do you have wall-to-wall carpet in there? There is. Yeah, that's going to be a bit of a problem because I'm sure the odor is is into that carpet. So a couple of things you could do. First of all, um, if you're going to paint the apartment, you're going to want to prime all the walls first. Well, first of all, wash them down, then prime them with a good quality primer, then paint them. That will help seal in what's gotten into the walls. As far as the carpet, a good, thorough, deep steam cleaning of that. You may have to go over it a number of times to try to get as much dirt and debris and odor out of that carpet as possible. I mean, the best thing, if we have situations where this is a real problem, the carpet's kind of worn, we'll tell people to take it up and prime the subfloor underneath, believe it or not, to make sure we really seal out uh, any of those odors that have soaked into the wood. But if you prime and paint the walls and if you steam clean the carpet, that's probably the best you can do. What about furniture? Is this place furnished? Do you still have the old furniture in there that the smoker uh, lived with? Um, the only furniture that's really in there is a leather um, living room set. Leslie, what do you think about that? Will the smoke odor get into the go through the leather and get into the cushions? You know, leather is such a, a natural surface that it is it porous in its own right, and it depends on what the cushioning is on the inside. You know, you really have to be careful, and of course, you can't really thoroughly clean leather because of its you know inherent natural qualities. You don't want it to stain. Um, you might want to see what those cushions are like on the inside. Take out the inserts. If you can replace those, that could be a huge help. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEY-PIT. Well, they say good fences make good neighbors, but they also add style and value to your home. We're going to give you some tips on picking and building the right fence for your needs after this. You live in a money pit. Starting an outdoor staining project? Make it faster and easier with Flood Wood Care products. Start today at flood.com simplify and use the interactive selection guide to find the right Flood Wood Care products for your project. Flood, simple across the board. 
making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Give us a call at 888-MONEY-PIT. We will help you with whatever home improvement project you're working on or planning, but we're also going to give you a great prize. This hour, one lucky caller is going to get a copy of our book, My Home, My Money Pit, Your Guide to Every Home Improvement Adventure, and we'll even sign it for you. 888-666-3974. All right, now we're heading on over to Michigan where Terry has a water heater question. What's going on at your money pit? I was wanting to know if um, $800 is a reasonable um, amount of money to pay to have um, a hot water tank replaced, but actually the tank was free and the labor was free, and the plumber said that um, need to pay $800 for parts only to replace a hot water tank. So he's saying the labor's free, but the water heater's 800 bucks. Is it a regular standard gas-fired water heater? The water heater itself was also free because it was a warranty item. That sounds pretty ridiculous for a warranty repair. If the labor's free, then he was already paid for a good portion of the work it took to take the tank out. Now, if he had to add an additional part, I don't quite understand his explanation, but if he had to add something additional or replumb something, I mean, $800 is a bit of a crazy price for a little bit of additional plumbing work, considering he was paid for the bulk of the project through the warranty. That sounds like you're getting gouged. Right. Um, we've already contacted the warranty company yep. and the plumber as well. Right. Um, and, you know, the warranty company says contact the plumber. The plumber says contact the warranty company. Do we really have any recourse at all to try and recoup some of that money? So you already paid this? Correct. Well, unfortunately, what I think you're going to have to do is take them to small claims court. And I would take both of them to small claims court, both, because then they'll fight it out amongst themselves because it's going to be more expensive to defend it than it is to, to settle it with you. Okay. Well, I thank you very much for taking the time to give me a call back. You're welcome, Terry, and I'm sorry that happened to you. Good luck with that project. Well, putting up a fence can add style, security, and value to your property, but it can also be an eyesore and a maintenance headache, and it can cause a battle with your neighbors. So how do you avoid the pitfalls? Well, you need to plan carefully. First off, check your property lines. You don't want to build in your neighbor's yard. That would be a very expensive mistake. And you also want to check with local officials to make sure that you don't need a permit to build a fence. And once you're sure about those things, then and only then can you start thinking about what kind of fence you want to create. Yeah, you know, fencing is available in so many different materials, including natural and pressure-treated woods, vinyl, and metal. Now, natural wood can really be beautiful, but it's going to require the most maintenance. So you've got to factor that in. Are you willing to put in the work to keep it looking fantastic? Also, you've got to remember that there are two sides to that fence, and it needs to look good from the outside as well as the inside. So don't try to save money on any part of that wood fence itself. You really need to make it look good. And you don't want to skimp on your gate because it's going to take the most wear and tear. And it can also be a security risk if somebody leaves it open. So be sure to add a spring hinge, and that's going to help it swing back into place. Now, this is super important if you've got a pool. For a complete checklist on what you need to know when you're planning a fence project, Just Google Money Pit Fence Building and you will be directed to the articles on moneypit.com on exactly that. Now we've got Kathleen in Rhode Island who's doing some decorating and needs some help choosing floors. How can we help you? Uh, There are so many choices. We're looking at laminate, engineered, and hardwood. What do you suggest? I have one concrete floor, which is the walkout basement, and then it's the first and the second floor. The first is main living area, and the second is bedroom. Well, in the basement, you can't use solid hardwood. You could only use engineered hardwood or the laminate. 
because it's too damp. Right. And the laminate's probably the better choice. But what about wear and tear? That's the other thing. I mean, laminate cannot ever be sanded. You need to rip it out and redo it. We're engineered can be. Well, I've got uh, probably 10 years on the laminate floor in my kitchen uh, and three kids that grew up on it. And I got to tell you, it's pretty tough stuff. And now there are different degrees of laminate too, no? There's different finishes. There's different durability. There's a test called a Tabor abrasion test. That's done on, on on laminate surfaces, also done on the finish of hardwood surfaces. And that's what determines how durable they are. So as long as you, if there's an option in the quality of finish from something that's maybe designed for residential or commercial, I'd always go with the tougher one. Right. Well, Kathleen, in, in my home, our basement is, you know, where my kids hang out. It's my workspace. And I put a laminate floor down there and I chose one that has, you know, a beautiful grain to it. It looks like a hardwood. And then I've used area rugs to sort of warm it up and make it feel more homey. But it's super durable. Um, I had a plumbing issue go awry and lots of water underneath it, and it didn't buckle, bend. You know, I was able to dry it all out and keep it really, really in good shape. Um, so I'm all for a laminate in a lower level. Now, when it comes to your main floor and your bedroom area, I'd be more inclined to lead toward, you know, an engineered hardwood or a hardwood, depending on your budget and depending on the aesthetic. Um you know, you can go with, if your concern is wear and tear and refinishing, you can go with a commercial grade finish. It's going to be a little bit more costly, but it's going to allow that hardwood to really stand up. You know, the other option to consider is in your entrance foyers or places where you come in and out, you know, like a mudroom, go laminate again in there or do a tile or, you know, a marble or something um, that will be more easily cleanable, more durable, um, you know, just to handle that type of wear and wear situation. Now, I personally, on a second floor, you know, and, and even in, in living spaces, you know, you say you're by the salt water, I imagine you have a certain sort of design style that, that could be sort of, I'm guessing like a traditional, but contemporary at the same time since you're on the water. And wider planks are very popular now. Yes, I agree. They're very attractive. They're very attractive. You can go for a plank that has, you know, some sort of a hand scraping detail to it that looks a little bit more agey and more worn and, you know, but still be durable. Okay. And so you're comfortable with that for a full living space for laminate. All right, good. We talked you into it. <laughs> Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Still to come, vinyl siding, it's a great low maintenance option for your house, but do you have to remove your shingles that you've already got up? We're going to tell you how to tackle that project after this. You live in a money pit. Where home solutions live, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Hey, have you ever been conned by a contractor? Well, on his new series, Catch a Contractor on Spike, Adam Carolla, a master carpenter, and his team are tracking down shoddy contractors and bringing them to justice. And once they track them down, Adam and the team will work with that contractor to make sure the job gets done right and bring justice for the homeowners. Catch a Contractor starring Adam Carolla premieres Sunday at 10 Eastern, 9 Central after an all-new episode of Bar Rescue on Spike. Be sure to tune in. It's going to be a great show. 
All right, 888-MONEYPIT is the number to get us here at Team Money Pit. Or you can post your question online just like Tom in New York did. And he writes, I'm thinking about adding vinyl siding. The house has wood shingles on it right now. Some contractors say the wood shingles have to come off. Others say they can stay on. Who's right? Well, I think what you're seeing here is the difference in contractors trying to get your project. Obviously, it's more expensive to take the shingles off, but I would be the first to tell you that that is the right way to do this. If you leave the old siding on, what's going to happen is the siding is going to end up being much thicker around the windows, and that can look a little odd when the siding sort of sticks out over the window trim as opposed to being sort of flush with the window trim. Leaving that siding in place does not add any insulation to the home, and so my vote would be for you to remove it completely and then start clean and rebuild out with brand new siding from there. You know, Tom, I actually just did a siding project myself at my money pit and I took everything off the exterior of the house and brought it down to, you know, bare studs and re-insulated and everything. And it just made for a cleaner finished project and it looks great. So it's worth that extra effort. Well, nothing could be more welcoming and cozy than a country-themed kitchen. The country style focuses on making a room warm and friendly, all while maintaining a kitchen that is practical. Leslie's got some tips and ideas to help you design your own country kitchen in today's edition of Leslie's Last Word. You know, it's a look that's classic and comfy, but it can also be practical, too. And when choosing the materials for your country kitchen, you want to keep everything as natural as possible. That's really important in setting that feel. Now, hardwood flooring, it's a classic look, but it doesn't always lend itself to the abuse that a kitchen floor is going to take. A stone or a tiled floor contrasting with your wooden cabinetry is really going to bring that room to life and sort of give that, you know, authentic country cottage feel. Now, with your kitchen cabinets, a painted finish is a great look, especially if you're using a pale color, which might even allow the wood grain to show through. An island, these are so popular, they're a great feature for all styles of kitchens, but it does fit in particularly well with that country style that you might be going to create. Now on your island, you can even leave some open shelving, and that's a great way to display some country-themed accessories. You know, if you've got some wicker baskets, just make sure you let them do double duty. Don't just put a basket or something there that's not going to serve a purpose. You know, use it to store your kids' homework supplies in a neat way so that you're not going to see everything, you know, sort of mucking up your new design. Country colors and fabrics, they can include everything from blues and yellows to gingham and even twall patterns for your fabrics. Now, I personally like to look at the modern country feeling, and these use traditional colors and patterns in a really different way. Now, you might even consider painting a gingham-checked focal wall or stenciling a twall pattern or even some cool wall coverings. All of this can lend to cooking up your own country kitchen, and you and your family are going to have a warm spot to gather for years to come. Great tips. Hey, are you looking forward to the outdoor entertaining season? It's just around the corner and we are all ready for that. Why not give yourself some extra room with a brand new paver patio? This is a project that you can do yourself with a little help. We'll get expert advice from this old house landscaping contractor, Roger Cook, on the next edition of The Money Pit. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. 